that we um, had a long walk to get here because we all got to flash our Calvin socks. We all got, we got gift bags with Calvin socks. <laughs> Doing the university proud today. I just wanted to say a word as we get going of, of thanks to Calvin for having me back. I'm a Calvin uh, grad from 2003. And, uh, you know, I was always taught, it was always emphasized to me when I was here, that the humanities are essential to who we are and what we do, and that if you want to understand the human spirit or the human soul, one very good place to start is to sit down and start reading across all cultures and across all centuries. And I've taken that lesson with me throughout my life and throughout my career, and I'm just grateful to Calvin for, uh, for having always taught that and having always emphasized that. Joanne, do you want to say a word about what we're doing here today? Yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for coming today and for listening to this conversation. Uh, Abram and I, in 2020, uh, we started this podcast called Poetry for All, and there are a lot of wonderful poetry podcasts in the world, and we know those and we appreciate those a lot, and what we try to do is really focus on close readings of poems, and we try to really think about meeting people where they are. And that is to say we don't assume a lot of prior knowledge about poetry. We don't assume people love poetry. <laughs> and actually quite a lot of people in both of our lives are sometimes apprehensive about it, right? Yeah. Um, they might feel some discomfort with it. So our goal with these episodes is to really draw attention to the poems and poets that we love and admire the most and just spend some quality uh, time and attention thinking about them and understanding them and reading them aloud so that we can just enjoy the, the pleasure of the language and its provocations. So that's what we do. So today, we're going to give you a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at how we make a podcast. So when we make a podcast, especially with a guest, we usually talk for about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, and then we edit that down to 20 or 25 minutes, which means that there are some things that get edited out. But when we're live, they are not edited out. <laughs> so this, this could be interesting. You get to see what else we say. Uh, but I should also let you know that uh, Joanne and I are both sort of super fans of Marilyn Nelson. So if we get a little weepy up here, um, that's, that's why. We're, we're, we're trying to just fanboying and fangirling up here and, uh, and letting you share in uh, yeah. with a little bit of that. Yeah. So maybe we should get rolling. Yeah, so what we like to do is we like to start with a reading of the poem. So, Marilyn, would you be willing to read this poem for us? What do you mean? Us? I was supposed to read it. If, if you're, <laughs> if, I was if kind you're of willing. hoping I could hear it. <laughs> uh, this is How I Discovered Poetry. It was like soul kissing, the way the words filled my mouth as Mrs. Purdy read from her desk. All the other kids zoned an hour ahead to 3.15, but Mrs. Purdy and I wandered lonely as clouds borne by a breeze off Mount Parnassus. She must have seen the darkest eyes in the room brim. The next day, she gave me a poem she'd chosen especially for me to read to the all-except-for-me white class. She smiled when she told me to read it, smiled harder, said, oh, yes, I could. She smiled harder and harder until I stood and opened my mouth to banjo-playing darkies 
pickaninnies, disses, and dats. When I finished, my classmates stared at the floor. We walked silent to the buses, awed by the power of words. Thank you. So this is a poem that is a sonnet, and we'll come back to that in, in just a moment. But I wonder if you could say a word about how the book developed around the poem, because you were telling us in the green room the poem was written 25 years before the book, and the book sort of evolved around the poem. And what the book is, just for those who, who haven't seen it yet, is 50 sonnets that are, in a certain sense, a memoir of a young girl growing up African-American in the 1950s. But each of them is a sonnet, 50 sonnets across this time. And this is the second to last sonnet. So I wonder if you could say a word about what inspired you to write this book and how this poem sort of fit into it as you were going. Yes, I'm not quite sure why I wrote this particular poem. I wrote it and it didn't fit with anything I was working on at the time, but it was a poem I appreciated and I included it in the book I was writing at the time. And then 20 or so years later, I thought I would write a book about the 50s. And I started looking at old magazines of the 50s to be taken back. Saturday Evening Post, lot. just looking at the ads took me back. And I, I started writing this book about the 50s and my publisher uh, said, well, nobody's going to be interested in a book about the 50s, <laughs> uh, but maybe if you make it about yourself, it would be worth writing, so I shifted gears, and then this poem had a place. It's a, it's a beautiful book, and I hope that all of our listeners and everyone here will, will read the book if you haven't already. One of the things I admire most about it is, Abram, as you say, formally, each of the poems is a sonnet, right? So there's a, a really interesting exploration of and experimentation with that form. But I also love the attention to place, to landscape, how various landscapes work on the child in these poems, um, how she exerts herself onto various landscapes. Can you say a bit about the narrative situation of the, the book, and this is what I love so much about your work, and you do this in, in a lot of your collections. They are profoundly lyrical. They have formal preoccupations, especially with the sonnet. But in so many of your books, you're able to tell a story across multiple poems. Can you say a bit about the story that you're telling in this book about place and about how form in each of these sonnets allows you to navigate mm -hmm. that space? Um, yes. One of the last words you just spoke uh, takes me right there. My, my father was a navigator on B-52s uh, in, in the Air Force for all of my childhood. And because we were a military family, we moved around 
pretty much every year or every two years. So th the um, poems in this book start in Cleveland, Ohio, where I was born. Of course, it starts with me. Um, <laughs> the world starts with me. Um, and, um, and goes on to uh, travel. A lot of the poems take place in the car. And one of my favorite ones was uh, in some place in the Midwest when my sister and I were fighting in the back seat and my father saw a mailbox that said Nelson and he just turned into this driveway of a farm, Nelson's, and <laughs> this was in the 50s. We got up to the farm and the farmer came out and looked quizzically at my father and he said, I saw your mailbox with Nelson's too. Would you mind showing my girls your farm? <laughs> <laughs> this was in 1954, something like wow. that. And the poem ends in, and that's why I'm standing here petting this stupid cow. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, they're all from the child's perspective, but they're all also about places in America and people in America and American history. Mm -hmm. I, I want to just pick up on that last point because I know, according to my mother who knows all things, um, a significant portion of our live stream audience includes the retirement homes of Grand Rapids. So that's... <laughs> That's one population. But I also happen to know that we have a sixth grade class here from, from Rockford oh, Christian. And so when you think about writing poetry for different ages, I mean, this is a poem mm -hmm. about your, this is a book of poems um, about a speaker who is very close to who you are, but there is some distance there. It's a speaker, a girl. And yet it's also about deep issues of American history and culture in the 1950s. Do you think about yourself as writing differently for different audiences, different ages? Does your work get just coded and marketed to different ages after the fact without you sort of having planned that? I'm sort of curious how you think mm. about writing poetry in particular for different ages. Um, books do get labeled that people, not me, uh, often decide which audience is the right audience for a book. But I think I try to write for a general audience, whether I think um, poems are artifacts that can be read more than once and that can mean something different. If you read a poem from, from this book as a sixth grader, you get something from the poem, but if you go back and read it 20 years later or 30 years later, you, you, you get something different. And um, that's one of the riches, I think, of poetry that the poem, the artifact stays there, but the eyes of the reader, the mind, of the reader can change, and that change changes the artifact. Yeah. That's really uh, so powerful. Uh, 
for me, the book as a whole, and this poem certainly is a part of that, I've never read a book that gave me a more palpable sense of what it's like to be in a military family <laughs> and have to leave an environment quickly and maybe not be able to say goodbye mm -hmm. to all of the friends that you make mm -hmm. or neighbors that you have in a, in a certain environment and not really know what the future might hold. And I think that the ways in which the poetic speaker feels comfort in some places, discomfort in others, and what you said about American history and the, the engagement with history that the book has is really mm -hmm. powerful. And you know, for me as a reader, I'm a longtime admirer of your work, and I'm especially drawn to how you tell stories, including biographies, not only of your own experience, but the experiences of others. And so I, I admire your poems about George Washington Carver, which also includes sonnets. You have a beautiful biography of an artist named Augusta Savage, who I didn't know her work at all until I read your poems about her. And, uh, and I mentioned this to you last night, one book that I teach of yours regularly is uh, a sonnet sequence, and it's actually, it's called A Wreath for Emmett Till, and it's a crown of sonnets, right? Mm -hmm. So the sonnet form is one that you've come back to again and again. Could you talk about, you know, when you think about the sonnet, uh, it's a hundreds of years old form, right? It, it started in Italy with Petrarch uh, hundreds of years ago, and it still has powerful um, cultural meaning, uh, emotional meaning, what does the sonnet do for you? Why, why does that container draw you in to create what you create? Good question, thank you <laughs> uh, for the opening. It is my understanding that the sonnet, originally the Petrarchan sonnet, which is eight rhyming lines, and then six differently rhyming lines, was based on the perfect pro proportions of the... Mm, the golden ratio, right? The golden ratio, thank yeah. you. Yeah. I knew you would do Thank you. And these are the proportions that you see in tornadoes, you see in leaves, you see in Greek temples. And when the originators of the Petrarchan sonnet started writing these sonnets, that's what they were trying to create a linguistic, a verbal form that had the same perfect ratios. And I just, I still find that fascinating. Once I was teaching a, a workshop uh, just on sonnets, and one of the participants was a math teacher. And he brought in a big poster explaining these dimensions and the ratio so that I could have it to show, if I could carry it around with me, I should have brought it. Um, it's just beautiful. And I just love the idea of trying 
to create something perfectly beautiful that imitates the perfection of something that surrounds us in the natural world. And then um, beyond that, one of my, uh, probably the poem I'm proudest of is uh, this wreath of, of sonnets for Emmett Till. And that is a form that's made, it's a poem that's made up of 15 Petrarchan sonnets. And the last one, let's see, it's so hard to explain. The last line the of last, each sonnet the, yeah, becomes the, the first line of the next Thank sonnet. you, yes. Yeah, so that they're tied together, they're linked together. They're linked together individually, and then the last one consists of the first lines of the previous 14. So the final sonnet is all lines that you've seen before, yeah. but built into its own poem. And so it's a crown of sonnets that ends in a sonnet that's made up of all the sonnets that have come before. It's so incredible. it's a circle. And the circle itself is the perfect form. Yeah. And I, I just find that fact fascinating. <laughs> and, and what a challenge to try to... It's like any time you write something you're participating in creation. Mm. But writing something that consciously attempts to replicate one of the perfect forms of creation is, it's overwhelming. <laughs> so this is Poetry for All. So I want to make sure that all of us are on the same page about sonnets. We've got a lot of episodes in our podcast about sonnets, but just so that we're all clear about what's happening here. So the sonnet tradition, going back to Petrarch, has this division between the eight first lines called the octet and the bottom six lines called the sestet. In the octet, you've got an A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A rhyme. And the sestet has three different rhymes that can, can vary. Shakespeare took this sonnet form and changed it, shifted it. But what remained uh, the case is that very often, first of all, all sonnets basically have 14 lines. Most of them have, in English, have iambic pentameter. So that means da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, nobody is actually that mechanical about iambic pentameter. But that's the sort of background or, or spine to the sonnet. And then what happens between that eight lines and the six lines is what we call a volta, again from Italian, everything comes from Italian, uh, which means a turn or a shift from the first eight lines to the next six lines. And often what that shift will entail or encode is the first eight lines might be some kind of sight and the bottom six lines some kind of insight based on that sight or some kind of problem with some kind of answer. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the way the sonnet has evolved and taken off. And it's been around for 700 years. It's got all kinds of variations and all kinds of ways that, that artists work with it. But the basic gist of the shape has gone on uh, through 700 years, which suggests that it's a form pretty deeply embedded uh, in these poetic traditions. Well, and there are so many wonderful poetic forms. Uh, you know, you have the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetics, and it has hundreds of forms from all over the world. But there are few that have quite the resilience 
that the sonnet has, and there could be a lot of reasons for that. I love what you're saying about the golden ratio and about this balance and you know, uh, imitating what occurs already in nature. The other beautiful thing about sonnets is that they're easy to memorize. It doesn't take that long. If you really sit with a sonnet, maybe an hour or two, you could probably memorize it. And then if you live with it for a few days, you could recite or perform it. Um, it's very portable, right? And it's almost like a jewel, right? It's like a self-enclosed, it's like a pearl. And then in the case of the sonnet sequence, it's like a, a necklace full of, of jewels, you know? Yeah. And each one is unique. Each one achieves its own spectacular effect, but then together as a whole, um, they create something special. And I just wanted to say, we were talking with Christian Wyman, who's another poet, uh, a little while ago. And for all of you who might be English instructors out there, he's got this, I didn't know this, but if, if, if students show up late to his class, the penalty is that by the next class, they have to memorize a sonnet uh, and bring it back to class. So this is something to pass along, maybe to, to put into practice elsewhere. How do they do that? Yeah. So that's the penalty for showing up late, is that you have to memorize a sonnet by the next class. That's it's amazing. It's a reward. It's a reward. It's a penalty that is a reward. Um, just on Marilyn Nelson's point, this is the most math you'll ever get out of me on this podcast. But um, on the golden ratio, uh, some of you might know Fibonacci's numbers, but this is one way to understand what the golden ratio is. So if you start with one and add the two numbers before it, so zero plus one is one, one plus one is two, one plus two is three, Fibonacci's numbers begin to approximate the golden ratio the farther you go. So 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21. Uh, 13 over 21 is closer to the golden ratio than 8 over 13. And the farther you go, the closer it gets. But you can also use those numbers to draw a spiral. And if you draw that spiral, you'll find that spiral all over nature in pine cones and wave curls and all kinds of things. And so Fibonacci was the mathematician who sort of came up with this formula. But you could see the way that the sonnet begins to approximate those numbers and build that kind of spiral, that golden ratio into it. Um, but the Parthenon uses the same ratio and it's, it's all over the place. You will be surprised once you start looking for sonnets to realize how many of the poems you love are sonnets. That's right. That you didn't know they were sonnets but I would say that a good, probably 60% of the best loved po poems in, uh, in, certainly in the English speaking world, our sonnets. That's right. So, I yeah. think that's right. You know, it's interesting. I'm not going to get up and do the walking around now, but when I teach Shakespeare. <laughs> Please do. No, no. But when I you teach Shakespeare's sonnet, I know, I, I did wear, I do have these sonnets. <laughs> uh, is that when I teach Shakespeare's sonnets, I remind students that he was a playwright, right? He was an actor. He was a dramatist. And he was thinking of his sonnets as performances. And so embedded in the sonnet form is this performative element that can almost feel like a monologue. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, mm -hmm. So imagine a speaker mm -hmm. on a stage speaking to an audience about uh, his or her innermost thoughts and having a shift or a moment of insight either in the middle of the sonnet or putting a lot of pressure right on those final two lines of a Shakespearean sonnet volta, an aha moment or a detour, where in the process of the speaker speaking to the audience, but also inward toward themselves, they have this moment of discovery. And I think, again, that's a 
kind of part of the, the cultural layers of this incredibly powerful form. And I wonder if we could just start to talk about this poem in particular, and in doing so, maybe that'll help to provide a model for thinking about all the sonnets you know, that you've, you've written over the years, and in this book in particular. Quite often, we just start with the first sentence. And, and Can one, I start before yeah. the first sentence, though? I want to start with the title. Yeah. Because one of the things I want to emphasize yeah. is that poems actually begin before the poem begins. Yeah. And that the title, one way to think about titles in poetry is it's sort of like selecting the slope uh, when you're a skier. It, it sort of sets up the expectations. It's going to point your skis in one direction or another to see what's going to come of this. But it's one poem without that title and a different poem with it. How I Discovered Poetry gives you a certain expectation for what's going to follow. And the titles are really essential to, to a lot of poems. So the poems begin before the poems begin. They begin with the title. But then it passes into this first sentence. No, you're right. That's really important because it turns the poem into a kind of ars poetica, right? The, the, a poem about the experience of uh, writing poetry as well as the narrative itself. So how I discovered poetry, the first sentence reads, and it's important to read for the sentence and not just for the line, so that even if the poem is written with line breaks, reading for the sentence to see how we arrive, how, how the line breaks are working to create effects, but also understanding what the poem does narratively. So the first sentence reads, it was like soul kissing, the way the words filled my mouth as Mrs. Purdy read from her desk. So where does that put us? Why does the poem begin there? What does that do? I was in, I think, seventh grade in Mrs. Purdy's class in uh, Burns Flat, Oklahoma. And um, so it's in the voice of 12 or 13 year old. And the first thing that happens in that line is uh, there's a pun of soul kissing. So it's both intended to be two souls as if the teacher's soul and the student's soul have, have met there in mm. sharing this poem. But in my mind, it also comes from having been told by an older friend about what she called soul kissing, which in movies you, you would see passionate kissing where people are kissing with their tongues. <laughs> and um, so for me, the, 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 there is a pun there. It's both about sexy kissing and about spiritual communion. What a powerful way to start the poem, though, because it starts with that feeling of connection mm. and a very powerful connection mm. and a sense of real regard for the teacher and uh, what she's reading from her desk. Right? And I love the way also to go back to that sonnet form. It, you, if you listen for the beat of the lines, look what they do and look at the sounds that you're already establishing in the poem. It was like soul kissing the way the words, do you hear that alliteration? The way the words filled my mouth as Mrs. Purdy read from her desk. Do you hear that beat? 
read from her desk, you know? So even though it isn't a rhythm that calls too much attention to itself, it's there undergirding everything that's being said. It's really beautiful. Yeah, sometimes when I teach students about the, the rhythms of poetry, what I, sometimes when poetry doesn't rhyme, they say, what makes this poetry? Just because you've added random uh, line breaks? And I say, well, take a sentence you've written and put some line breaks in and see if it reads like poetry. And very often it will not. Uh, and the difference is because there is a musicality to poetry that is embedded in the line. There is a rhythm to it. Uh, some poets think, uh, begin with the sounds of poetry, the rhythms of poetry, and then find the words to match the rhythm. Uh, and you could hear that across a lot of different poems and uh, across this poem in, in particular as well. The other thing to think about is that poetry has always been, for as much as we read it on the page, it is, it is very often meant to be heard. Um, there are some kinds of poems that are also de definitely meant to be seen because of the way they look on the page and what that does. But poetry is meant to be heard, and when you hear it, you can begin to link sounds. So, of course, way and words, but where also get kissing and filled. You get to, um, in, in the, the words coming up, you have red and a head. Uh, and then you have this one sort of alliteration that we're about to come to, born, breeze, brim. Uh, you have 315, and then you have breeze, seen, me, read, right? Yeah. So you have these sounds built into the poem, not just to create the rhythms and the musicality of the poem, but to link each thought to the next one. And that's very often how sounds work across, across the poem. Is that how you think about sound and rhythms when you're creating poems? Do you, do you deliberately work to align certain sounds to cr create additional layers of meaning? Or does that sort of happen organically or a little bit of both? I would say a little bit of both because we're born to the language mm -hmm. and we're limited to the language, but being sensitive to the potential of alliteration is something we learn from being sensitive to language, I suppose. Just uh, recognizing that you can exploit this possibility there, you know, I can't remember uh, any of the words you, you um, chose, um, but there are always four or five other possibilities. Mm -hmm. And you can choose the one that's the most musical. And the, one of the ways of being musical, uh, one of the ways language can be musical, is in repetition of sound. That's right. So, yeah. and, and just to give a sense of where we're headed in this poem, and we should get back to the next lines of the poem, but the first line of the poem ends on the word words. It was like soul kissing the way the words, and then we go to the next line. And just so you see where this poem ends, begins and ends, the last word of the last line is also words. Mm. And so the poem begins and ends, uh, the first line and the last line, on that word. And where we're going to move is from one sense of the power of words to a very different sense about the power of words. And so that transition is going to be the turn in this, in the, in this sonnet, the volta in this sonnet. Mm -hmm. But you'll notice from the beginning that there's a kind of romantic sense of words, a soul kissing, the, this sense that poetry moves us, transports us. But you'll also notice, and I'll read the next uh, sentence of the poem here, that none of the other kids care. 
right? So this soul kissing, <laughs> this romantic vision of poetry is very transporting, is moving. It's one child and the teacher who are there on that, on that connection. And all the other kids want to go to recess. Um, and so that's, that's where we had, but it's not, it's going to be quite different at the end of this poem. And so just keeping that transition in mind is one way to think about the movements of this poem. Mm. Uh, but here's the next sentence. And then Joanne, I'll turn it over to you. Mm -hmm. All the other kids zoned an hour ahead to 315, but Mrs. Purdy and I wandered lonely as clouds borne by a breeze off Mount Parnassus. Yeah. What do you great. see happening there? I love that reference to Mount Parnassus. All of a sudden, we're in the world of, you know, the gods of, uh, you know, mythical inspiration, right? It's a, it's an utterly transporting moment. I, I, I love that so much, right? It's another sentence that really gives you a sense of the um, affection and connection between the teacher and the student. Do you have thoughts about that? Um. I think the, um, I was remembering, this is a, it's the first line from Wordsworth's Daffodils. Mm -hmm. I wandered lonely as a cloud. And um, so I wanted to give a, a clue as to a poem that was being, the poem that was being discussed. And I'm not sure where Parnassus comes from because it's not, I don't think it has anything to do with the Wordsworth. But it has, it's the home of the muses. Yes, it's just that the, the poem takes you yeah. out of this existence into on a, a, a higher plane yeah. mm -hmm. of existence. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. I, One of the things I noticed here, and um, this is something we emphasize across the podcast too, is that poetry is a conversation. And that poems very often are engaging in that conversation with poems that have come before, traditions that have come before. So to cite Wordsworth in the midst of this is also to give a sense of which kinds of poetry the teacher is reading, which kinds of poems are being transporting, yeah. and also a gesture towards, in a certain basic sense, white Western canons, Wordsworth, Parnassus, Greek poetry, Greek traditions. Yeah. And this is what's moving the child in the poem. But as we'll see, it's very much not the poem that the teacher gives the child to read. Do you want to take us forward? Yeah, and then again, to read to the next sentence, she must have seen the darkest eyes in the room brim. The next day, she gave me a poem she'd chosen, especially for me, to read to the all-except-for-me white class. So now this is an entirely different sentence that's narrowing in on the tension of the poem, which is that this is a teacher who is bringing in a poem specifically for this child, and the gesture seems to be coming from a place of attention and a desire to continue to connect with the child, but that isn't quite what happens at all. So and that's the end, by the way, of the octet. That's the end of the eighth line. You come to this, this, this period, and there's a kind of note of suspense there. The all except for me white class is a sense of like, where are we going with that? That's right. right? Why yeah. is that the important detail to note? Mm -hmm. And then the sentence ends. And if you're reading this as a traditional sonnet, not all sonnets turn at the ninth line. That's, that's not the case. But if you are reading this as a, as a traditional sonnet, you might begin to expect, okay, where are we about to go? Yeah. Uh, and then we begin to turn. 
right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So should we just head on to the next line? Yeah. She smiled when she told me to read it, smiled harder, said, oh, yes, I could. She smiled harder and harder until I stood and opened my mouth to banjo playing, darkies, pickaninnies, disses, and dats. When I finished, my classmates stared at the floor. I think I'm going to stop reading there because the reaction of the children is as important as the lines that preceded it. And mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, this is what's being described, what you do here, Marilyn, is such a powerful description of a transaction that isn't just between the teacher and the student, but also the other classmates reacting. Do you want to say a bit about how you made those choices in the poem? Uh, yes, I suppose so. Um... May I talk first about the teachers? Yes, yes please. I mean, oh yeah, the teachers I've heard from. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, yeah. Because um, this poem has, as individual, a little tiny uh, controversy in a teacup. Um, <laughs> th uh, is this poem because we now live in a world in which it's possible to find black authored poems which claim this language for themselves and use it. But the poem this teacher gave me was from the plantation tradition. It was, it was right after maybe 20, 30 years after the Civil War, there were a number of white Southern writers who wrote about the South to glorify the lost honor of the South. And this literature was popular for a while. And the poem, the teacher, gave me to read came from that tradition. And so sometimes teachers have the sense that the teacher in the, in the poem is giving the child something that is glorifying black culture, but it's not glorifying it. It's, it's denigrating it. It's making it something to be ashamed of. And I've, I've heard from several teachers who write to me because their reading of this poem differs from the reading that their students give the poem. And they want me to say that they, the teachers, are, are right. <laughs> um, it's amazing to me, first of all, that the students can perceive exactly what's happening. Yes. Um, and that the t and I think part of what's happening in that is uh, we were just talking about this, but there's poetry invites identification, and um, and there's a lot of hardworking teachers out there who who want to um, share the love of poetry with students, especially students interested, and so they see in this poem exactly that. This is a teacher who's working hard to share the love of poetry with the student. But if you get into what actually is being shared, you realize that's not what's happening here. 
And I think one of the clues to it, and we talk a lot about a sonnet is limited real estate, right? So if you think about 10 syllables per line, 14 lines, you've got 140 syllables, period. You're, you're, that's it. It's limited real estate. Uh, and so whenever you have repetitions in a sonnet, it's sort of like having a double lot in a neighborhood. I mean, it, it raises the price, right? Why do you have repetitions? Yeah. Um, what are you really trying to get across? And look at this repetition as we, as we get into the turn. She smiled, smiled harder. She smiled harder and harder, right? The, these repetitions are giving us a clue that this teacher is up to something, Right. And it's um, a, it becomes a sinister smile. And it becomes right? very sinister. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, that mm -hmm. emphasis on that word harder, it's, it feels forced. Um, it feels like there's something else at work. Even before um, you write the, those allusions to what feels like a minstrelsy kind of um, poem, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where we're headed in this poem. And that's how the turn takes place. And again, sort of understanding the 700-year history of sonnets, which we've just kind of shared with you, allows you to begin to see, ah, this is a sonnet with a turn in it. This is a sonnet where we're going somewhere where we did not begin. Um, but all sonnets, uh, sonnet comes from the, the Latin as well for little song, right? Yes, yeah, so It's a little song. So, so a, a little song can't have that, right? It doesn't have a lot of themes. It tends to have one theme. And so it's still on point. It's still on theme, yeah. even with a turn. And what's amazing, though, you, you use that word identification and, you know, a reader's desire to, and it just happens, whether we're reading novels or poems or creative nonfiction, this desire to connect with the experiences that are um, being narrated. But this is a poem um, that really complicates that and uh, really challenges any reader to just take a moment and, and understand um, there are various ways of reading and that this could have really hurtful um, implications uh, for this child. And then, as I said, though, I'm still, I'm very interested in those. Oh, it, there was one part of the story, <laughs> though, that you were telling us backstage about how actually this is a poem that appears, is it on the SAT exam? Yes. Right. And that that was in part where some of those teachers were writing to you to confirm that, yes, this is a poem that validates the hard work that teachers do. When, in fact, the students were like, well, actually, this is a racist moment. <laughs> but that gap, that gap is incredible to me, the story you told, because that, I feel like that's a whole other poem. You know, the, the gap of the well-intentioned teachers between the teachers and what the, the students are actually experiencing as they read this. It's incredible. Yeah. I think um, you've both mentioned the, the act of identification. And I think that... Whereas the teachers who misread the poem, the, it, I think they're misreading it. Mm -hmm. um, they're identifying with the teacher. That's right. And the students who read the poem correctly are identifying with the students mm. yeah. in the poem because they're staring at the floor. Yeah. They walk silent yeah. to the buses. I, I remember how touching my, the response of my classmates. I was the only black kid. I think there were two of us in the entire school. We were in, on an Air Force base in Oklahoma. We were going to 
a town school in this little town in Oklahoma. And my classmates were gobsmacked mm. by this. They couldn't look at me. They couldn't look at the teacher. They were silent as we walked out of the classroom. Um, we had all learned something. Teacher hadn't learned anything. <laughs> but yeah. all of us had learned something about about the power of language. Mm. So. Well, I want to get into that turn because there's two things that happen in the last lines that, again, reflect back on where the poem began and how we get there. One thing is that the students that zoned ahead now are staring at the floor. Mm. And so one of the things we get in a very uh, unexpected way is that in the negative power of this racist poem, these other students have begun to understand the actual power of poetry. They didn't get it at first when it was Wordsworth. Yeah. But when you put a racist mm -hmm. poem in front of them, then suddenly they, they begin to realize that actually poetry packs a great deal of power and it can actually mm -hmm. hurt mm -hmm. uh, a great deal. Uh, it can help a great deal, but it can hurt a great deal. And so they, in response, I love this, they give up words. Right? Yeah. They go, the students, the fellow students go silent. So in the power of words that we have now experienced within this poem, they stop talking. That's that moment of silence when we begin in a very different way. These are the last words of the poem. We walked silent to the buses, awed by the power of words. But the most important word there for me is we, because even though the experience of the speaker is completely different from those other classmates, collectively they're awed into silence. For diff in different ways, right? But um, that, that none of them are able to find the words to respond to this. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. So we have just a few minutes left, and we're happy to take questions up here for Marilyn Nelson, but I know you have more to say. No, I have just one question, and that is, typically, when we talk about a poem with a guest, we often ask at the end, if the poet would read the poem one more time with all that we have in mind. And I wonder if we could do that yeah, first definitely. and then maybe turn it over to people if they have any questions for us, if you'd yeah. be willing to, yeah. Okay. How I discovered poetry. It was like soul kissing, the way the words filled my mouth as Mrs. Purdy read from her desk. All the other kids zoned an hour ahead to 3.15, but Mrs. Purdy and I wandered lonely as clouds borne by a breeze off Mount Parnassus. She must have seen the darkest eyes in the room brim. The next day, she gave me a poem she'd chosen especially for me to read to the all-except-for-me white class. She smiled when she told me to read it, smiled harder, said, oh, yes, I could. She smiled harder and harder until I stood and opened my mouth to banjo playing darkies, pickaninnies, disses, and dats. When I finished, my classmates stared at the floor. 
We walk silent to the buses, awed by the power of words. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So we have about five minutes if someone has a question. I got one question that came in here. Maybe I'll just pitch this over to both of you, either one of you who are both poets. I'm not a poet. I write about poetry, but I very happily don't write poetry. <laughs> I love poetry. I love to read poetry. You could. Um, you but could. this is, this is a, um, a question. What words of advice would you give to an engineering student? I don't know why it has to be engineering, but an engineering student who tends to struggle having the patience for poetry. Or, uh, to put it differently, how would you explain to this engineering student the purposes of poetry? <laughs> Why engineering? Engineers can love poetry. I don't, I don't see a problem with that. I don't see any problem with that either. I'm so <laughs> confused by this question. Do you know I taught a poetry workshop at the Newberry Library in Chicago. This was many years ago, and it was to adult learners. And one of the people who uh, signed up for the workshop was an engineer, and she wrote the best poems in the whole class. And I think, and some of them were actually about building bridges and buildings. Uh, and they were, I'm, I'm not kidding, they were spectacular poems. And I think she understood something that engineers understand about building things mm -hmm. and about taking disparate parts and creating uh, order out of disorder, you know, and having a plan. Like, it, it occurred to me that her profession had equipped her beautifully uh, for, for creating lines of poetry. We were talking about this with the class that met before this, that, that poetry is really the art of attention. That's what it is. The poetry is the art of attention through language. And to be able to pay attention to things and to, to be able to bring others to attention is part of what poetry is all about. But if you think about what science is, science is an art of observation as well. I mean, science is based in observation. That's the kind of scientific method, right? And so there's actually a, a close overlap between the kinds of attention and observation that poetry is able to bring to the world and the kinds of observation that science teaches scientists to have. And I, I see no competition between those things. Can I say one more thing? What film was it? Was it Apollo 13 or something else where there was like imminent disaster with the rocket ship and the engineers from NASA were given like 15 different kinds of materials on a table and they had like an hour to figure out how to like fix the thing on the I, I don't know which, I, right? <laughs> To me, that's poetry, isn't it? Like, I've got this word, and I've got this idea, and I've got this puzzle that I'm trying to solve. Oh, the world is waiting for me. Right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, uh, I spent the spring semester of the year 2000 teaching two sections of poetry and contemplation hmm. at West Point. It was, it was the most wonderful experience. My students were all about to finish and go off to be deployed in Iraq. And they were so eager to read poetry. And they, I mean, and I taught them to meditate also. 
Um, and it's, those two things are related. Yeah. I think poetry tends to be contemplative. And if you're trying to read poetry the way you would read a novel, just one page, next page, that's not the way to read poetry. Poetry requires attention. It requires contemplation. Poetry asks you to slow down and savor language, to see what this construction made out of words can teach you. And if you're trying to read poetry the way you read a novel or the New York Times, you're just not giving the poetry enough time to get inside of you and work on you. Mm. You have to either read the poem aloud, which is a very, probably the best way to do it, to read it aloud more than once. If you read a poem aloud slowly twice, you probably get a lot of what the poet is intending because poetry is really, it's performative language. So, um, you want to read it the same way you would read a powerful speech from a play. Mm. And I think that's all I have to <laughs> say about that. Let me end us on these lines. These are lines from your, the, we, we said that was the second to last poem in yes. the book. There's a, there's a last poem in your book. Right. And these, these are the last lines of your book. Uh, and it's, it's this, this girl who's looking at the mirror worried that she might become a poet someday. And it says, you can't see what the mirror doesn't show. For instance, that after I close my book and turn off my lamp, I say to the dark, give me a message I can give the world. Afraid there's a poet behind my face. I beg until I've cried myself to sleep. Can we all thank uh, Marilyn Nelson for being here? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.